Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Roy Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So the abortion decision went before the U.S. Supreme Court, the abortion case. Uh, the hearing was last Wednesday. Plenty of tea leaves to read, Connor. We're going to get into the question of uh, what the questions and comments by the justices might tell us about what they're going to decide, probably on June 29 or 30, 2022. Because yeah. traditionally, if there's a big contentious decision, uh, even if the hearing is relatively early in the term, which basically is the first Monday in October through the end of June, right. they sit on it until late June. Yeah. Uh, of course, there was that other abortion decision involving Texas that's kind of hanging fire. So it's always possible they'll want to kick them both out the door at once. But uh, unlikely. Yeah. If I were going to place a bet in Las Vegas, I'd say we're not going to hear about abortion until late June. But that doesn't mean we can't speculate on what might be coming down the pike based on the comments. It does mean that it will become a central issue in the 2022 elections one way or another, yep. especially yep. if any change happens in the law, which it's almost certainly uh, certain to happen that there will be some change of some sort. Yep. Uh, the second topic we'll get into is uh, this horrific Michigan school shooting case, the 15-year-old killing four people and I think injuring a dozen or more. Uh, the question is, should the boy's parents be charged with manslaughter? Yeah. They have been charged for a while. They thought we thought they were going to be fugitives. Now, that'd be a class act. That'd be a class act, wouldn't it? Their 15-year-old kid yeah. rotting in jail, yeah. up for murder, and yeah. they're in the Bahamas. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, we'll get into it. Uh, they hired some pretty fancy lawyers for themselves. Uh, son's got a public defender. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, just like in my cousin Vinny, sometimes <laughs> the, they, I've just maligned public defenders everywhere. That's true. Hopefully I don't need them. But uh, all right. Topic three we're going to get into is uh, Bill Cosby. Uh, is the Supreme Court going to put him back in prison? Seems weird. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court sprung him several months ago, but now the prosecutors are not taking that line down. They are seeking relief from the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll talk about whether that makes sense or not. And then we're at the end of the episode. As always, we're going to play America's favorite game, Guess the Verdict, and Connor's excellent track record will be put on trial once again. And this, I'll give you a little tease here, the Guess the Verdict case today has to do with a crushed hand, a crushed mm. hand and a tort a case tort. that arose out of this sad injury. So before we get to uh, the top story about abortion, a couple of things uh, we wanted to touch on the Theranos case. And a lot of people are following this very carefully. Elizabeth Holmes is the Stanford dropout. She dropped out, I think, when she was a sophomore had a bright idea to miniaturize the process of blood tests. And she came up with the notion that, doggone it, with a single drop of blood from a finger prick, she could tell you if you have any of about 200 conditions, from HIV to cancer and everything in between. And it turned out not so much. The technology was somewhat flawed. So huge civil cases, hmm, SEC investigations. Somewhat flawed is a good way to put it. Yeah. And now Maybe she's, never existed is another way to put possibly. it. Possibly. And she's on trial now for for fraud, lying to patients and investors and and doctors, and she could go to prison, I think, for forty years. 
And the, the trial is wrapping up fairly soon, but the dramatic events of the last week or so involve her taking the stand. We didn't know if she was going to testify. These criminal defendants uh, always have to make the call, basically mid-trial after they hear the prosecution's case uh, and decide whether they want to risk going on uh, the stand and subjecting themselves to a withering cross-examination. Right. And that is generally the, the default setting. The default setting is most of the time, cross-examination by a really good, smart attorney is going to tear you apart no matter how good uh, you think you're going to be on the stand. So by default, you should probably exercise your Fifth Amendment right. Now, that changes. Maybe the cross-exam is not going to be that withering. Maybe you're going to be a really good witness. And maybe the default setting in your case might be that you were always going to be on. But a lot of people looked at this case and how it went and how strong the government's evidence was against her, uh, against Holmes, and said... They needed to make a change. They needed to take uh, a risk. And so they put her on the stand to testify, knowing this could backfire, but it could also go really well and turn the tide because we're really worried about the evidence uh, that has been presented against us. So a lot of people say that her testifying at all uh, was an indication that the government's case uh, was uh, was was really racking up a lot of points. Yeah, yeah. You're willing to take the gamble of going on the stand if you think that without that you're probably going to be found I mean, guilty. The government had a bunch of really uh, uh, just really strong witnesses. Uh, people like James Mattis, uh, Mad Dog Mattis, uh, <laughs> and and you know people represented in Henry Kissinger. Uh, but Henry Kissinger was on the board, uh, just like Mattis was on the board, and they had people from their organizations, representatives. Uh, of them, of of Kissinger saying, Holmes herself sent us documents, for example, uh, that were Mad Mattis's testimony was about how uh, the, the uh, Holmes statements that the army was going to use her technology in army medevac helicopters, uh, which sounds impressive and like maybe the U.S. government thinks this technology is, is valid and works, uh, that those were BS. And then representatives from Kissinger said that... Uh, uh, that uh, they had been sent reports by Holmes herself that had been doctored to look like they had were positive and glowing and had come from major pharmaceutical companies that therefore would validate and back right. this. And so all this evidence uh, was was mounting that the company was doing shady things. The the tough part, of course, is connecting Holmes specifically because. You can't get a criminal conviction against Elizabeth Holmes unless you decide that she was the mastermind or knew all along and kept, you know, try to keep all the spinning plates in the air while yeah, the technology she was lying about the technology. She had to be a liar herself uh, for these criminal charges to stick against her. At first, you know, Henry Kissinger, uh, we thought he was going to testify. He was on the prosecution's uh, witness list. He was on the board of directors, and I think he may have invested some money and got some other folks to mm -hmm. invest. Mm -hmm. And But then the prosecution decided not to call him. I have a theory yeah. as to why. I think they probably figured out that what he would say is, I'm, I'm actually the world's smartest man, and uh, there's no way anybody could could pull the wool over my eyes. Mm -hmm. So no, Elizabeth certainly mm -hmm. didn't fool me. That's a really good impression. Well, I, I think that's the impression the prosecution had about what he might say. <laughs> You're anyway, probably right. We're not going to hear from him. So uh, a couple of inside baseball points about uh, Theranos. It was very clever, the timing of Elizabeth Holmes' testimony, because trial lawyers like to end on a bang in a week. Right. Uh, they like to leave the jury thinking on an entire weekend, oh my gosh, that was pretty strong testimony for the defense. And so they put her on midday on a Thursday. Day, the mm -hmm. week week before Thanksgiving. Smart. And so they finished 
uh, the week with her testimony. Right. She wasn't done with the direct, but but she polished off the week. Having so, the last word last before word. a break is a big deal. And then the next week, short week, yeah. two days because of Thanksgiving, the judge gave him Wednesday off. She still was on the stand by the end of Tuesday. So now on another big five-day weekend, all the jury has to think about is, oh, Elizabeth, she she has uh, such a deep, husky voice, and she sounded so uh, honest and right. so on. Uh, so now the problem arises. She's being cross-examined, and the uh, prosecutors are very good. Uh, they have uh, there aren't any dead bodies on the highway, no real smoking guns uh, for the prosecution, just a whole litany of evidence that you know, things were really looking bad and going south for the company. And she and really did, should have been moderating her right. claim. She should have been pulling it back. She should have been admitting that, hey, there's maybe some problems with this technology going on uh, when, in fact, uh, she maybe knew even more than that um but she was still talking it up like we're the new hot stuff on the block yeah and and i think one problem for the prosecution is because there aren't dead bodies on the highway a juror could look at this and say oh boo-hoo a bunch of rich people lost right yeah tens or hundreds of millions of dollars big deal and also like there's this notion that salespeople gonna sell ceos are gonna talk about how great Mm -hmm. their company is startups fail yeah you're gonna you think that the ceo new ceo twitter uh, now that Jack Dorsey has stepped down, is going to come out and be like, we got a lot of Nazis on our platform. And I'll tell right. you what, it's a serious problem and you should all be real worried about it. But uh, don't delete your accounts. No, he's going to be positive. The question is, how positive? Is he allowed to bluster? Yes. Is he allowed to just talk generally about how great his product is and how great it's going to become in the future and what amazing thing it's going gonna, it's gonna to do, even if he doesn't know exactly how it's going to do that or if it's really going to do that? He just suspects it might. Yeah, he could do that. Can he make promises? You know, can he write checks his butt can't cash? That's a tougher question. Where's the line there? And that's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a really complicated uh, question that the average lay person doesn't really understand the obligations of a, of a CEO uh, to the shareholders, to the public, that sort of stuff. It's complicated. I think a critical question in terms of who wins this case is going to be how the jury reacts to her emotional, tearful testimony about the abusive boyfriend. Yes. Because this guy was like 20 years older than she was. Yep. He was Mr. Science. Uh, Balwani, I think is his name. Uh, they had a romantic relationship. She claimed that he was abusive. He right. would force her to have sex and he would force her to eat certain things. Her diet was dictated by this creep. Right. And if the jury buys that, I can see how they maybe would say, well, on top of all the other evidence, we're going to we're going to cut her a break. Uh, but As, they might say it's a little too convenient. Yeah. He's not there to answer because he's yep. going to be tried himself yep. in a few months in a separate trial. So they have the lawyers for Holmes have the opportunity to call this uh, expert who's a psychologist in relationship violence who has you know met Holmes talked to Holmes analyzed Holmes and probably written a report uh, while in California the experts don't usually write reports if you write a report ahead of trial for your side you're hired as an expert that becomes discoverable and the other side gets to see it ahead of time so you don't write things down uh, you just come to your conclusions, and then you testify about them. On the other hand, sometimes if an expert does not write a report, the jury might think, what kind of a jerk is this guy? Very complicated technical stuff. That's why they needed an expert. He didn't even write his conclusion. The other side's report, 30 pages, is well-documented. So it's a little dangerous. The problem is if you do write a report, it gives a real nice roadmap for the other side to prepare to depose you and prepare to cross-examine. And if you say anything that's different than the report or in any way could be construed to contradict 
contradicted, then these smart lawyers will pull out the report and they say, well, on page 27 of your report, you say this, but you just testified and you said this, and those are different. And I think you're lying to us right now, basically. And that, you know, opens you up to a new uh, element. As a result, we don't even know if they're going to call this expert, this, this the expert who, who talks about relation to violence. Again, it depends on how the case goes. A lot of these decisions that lawyers make uh, and their clients make together with them uh, are on the fly. You have to know, how is this case going? Am I winning? If I'm winning, how do I get more ahead? Or how do I maintain my lead in the jury's mind? And if I'm losing, how do I make a big play to change the tides? Or if we're close how, how can I be sure? How can I know? Is this thing that's a risk going to hurt me more than, you know, than, than I uh, uh, am already, uh, am I already hurting? Um, it, it, it's a really difficult thing. And I mean, that's why you need smart lawyers who figure out uh, the, what the correct strategic moves are and how jurors' minds work and how this next piece of evidence is going to land. Frankly, I think, I think having an expert on relationship violence is likely to happen. I think that the defense will probably put it on. I think it's another big swing that they may feel that they have to take mm -hmm. because of how strong the uh, the uh, the case by the the um, uh, the prosecution is and has been. Um, I think that the longer that the the defendant's case in chief goes, um, probably the better. I think there's a lot of power in putting distance between the jurors, between the, the plaintiff's case, that is, sorry, the prosecution's case, and the jury deliberations. The, this is not a case of, you know, it's not a three-day, four-day, five-day, six-day case. This is weeks and weeks. And as a result, memories fade. And by the end of the case, you know, I had a case specifically where um, we had, it was a short jury trial, so it's not completely analogous, but it's a tiny microcosm of it. Three days of trial, plaintiff, uh, Plaintiff rested their case, um, and my side only had uh, one witness um, and we uh, one in, uh, one expert. Um, we had agreed, uh, lawyers often agree in, in, in trial, to stipulate to call witnesses only one time, and they will, uh, if that, that means if one side calls the defendant, say the, the prosecution or the plaintiff calls the defendant as part of, as a witness, and they choose to testify, then the you get all that testimony out of the way right so in my case my case in chief was just going to be one guy one expert because mm -hmm. we already had my defendant on the stand during the plaintiff's case right. so they put on their whole case they have their expert their expert rests it, it their expert finishes the plaintiff rests that's on a wednesday we're off the courtroom's dark because they have motion practice on thursday and friday then was saturday and sunday then we come back the jury I think probably barely remembered what had happened last week and the impact. Yeah, they got to go home with the uh, the expert for the plaintiff's uh, comments ringing in their ears. But the last thing they heard was actually me cross-examining that expert. And then they're gone for four days. We come back Monday and they get Connor's defense expert followed immediately by closing arguments, deliberations, boom, go. And the gap, the distance in time between the plaintiff's case in chief and the deliberation, I think is very key yeah, no, in a case like Theranos. You're right. There, I mean, the, if you put, put on experts about Elizabeth Holmes' mental state and her testifying and crying and talking about how terrible this was, 
if they think back at the, what was Henry Kissinger's guys talking about? What was Mad Dog Mattis here in this courtroom testifying about? I don't even remember. It was five weeks ago. Now you're right. The solution to that, though, based on the process of, of a trial, uh, can be for the plaintiff or the prosecution to reopen their case for yes. a rebuttal case. Because mm-hmm. you know, if you if you've been on a jury, uh, then you know you've heard the speeches by the judge, whether it's a plaintiff in a civil case or prosecution in a criminal case. The way it works is because the plaintiff or the prosecution has the burden of proof, they get some goodies. They get to go first in the opening statement, and then in the case, they get to go first, and then they get to put on a rebuttal case. And then in the final argument, the plaintiff or prosecution goes first, then the defense puts on their final argument, and then if they desire it, which they should, the plaintiff will get a chance to have a rebuttal closing argument. And so uh, in Theranos, maybe the prosecution will come up with some witnesses to uh, replay a highlights reel of their strong points in their rebuttal case. Of course, then the defense gets to go back and forth and, and until the judge tells everybody to shut up. Yeah. So when we come back, we will get to the top story of the week, the reading of the abortion tea leaves. Yep. But first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Check us out on whatever podcast platform you prefer. That's probably, numerically, Apple Podcasts. Click the Join button, and you'll get pushed a new episode every single week. We really appreciate it. If you want to leave us a star review, a five out of five, a uh, you guys are great comment, we would love that, too, because they stroke our ego, and that's what this whole pod is about. It's lawyers <laughs> talking because lawyers love to talk. At least, but we're, at least we're honest At least we're honest about it, right? Yeah. And it's fun, and it's an excuse to hang out together, mostly. We'll be right back. <laughs> This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Noel And I'm Connor Oates. So the hearing in the uh, the Dobbs case, the abortion case before the United right. States Supreme Court uh, was uh, on Wednesday, December 1. The question is, how clearly do the tea leaves speak? I think most people are figuring based on what the justices said. And they said uh, a lot. They said a lot, including Clarence Thomas, who used to be Mr. Silent, and now he is definitely active on the bench. I think probably the Supreme Court is going to do something... Uh, contrary to Roe as to whether they totally dump it or whether they gradually try to chip away at it. That was actually the subject of a Wall Street Journal op-ed by a guy named Richard Ree. He is a University of Virginia Law School professor, and he has an interesting background. He used to clerk for both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And his point, yeah, his point, and those two guys are the keys to the outcome in uh, in this abortion case, because we know that the three liberals are going to vote to uphold Roe. We know almost certainly that Amy Coney Barrett and Scalia, not Scalia, uh, Alito Alito, uh, and Clarence Thomas Thomas. are are going to really go after it. Uh, It's hard to tell. John Roberts may well try to chip away at it, but the real question marks are Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And so it's jarring to overturn a long-held precedent all at once. That's mm-hmm. just a reality. That's a point made by this professor Especially in the Wall Especially when Journal. 60% of Americans say it shouldn't be. 60% right. of Americans polled go one way. And I'll tell you, when the gay marriage decision came down, you had a, a, a public opinion swing that went in favor of a big change. And that caused the Supreme Court to be able to flex its muscles and say, oh, yeah, since the American public is behind us and public opinion is changing so quickly, we can do this. We can we can step in and basically legislate here and say gay marriage is now legal. This would be the opposite. This would be them stepping in and saying, despite public opinion polling going that direction right. and 
and being there already, 60% negative, we're going to do it anyway. That's a big change. Yep. So there were some hints by Chief Justice Roberts in the oral argument that they are prepared to dump the viability rule. Because remember back in Roe versus Wade in the 70s, the court basically came out and said, look, there are three trimesters. And in the first trimester, a woman absolutely has a right to have an abortion, uh, due process rights uh, under the U.S. Constitution, part of privacy. But in the next two trimesters, mm, uh, the states do have a right to impose some restrictions. Uh, and the way they referred to it in Roe was the potentiality of life. Uh, a, the state has an interest in yeah. protecting and promoting the potentiality. And potentiality of, of, life. of life is this sort of vague and one level abstracted version of viability. People also like people ended up saying, well, is the baby currently at the moment of the abortion viable? Can it live right. outside the womb? That's a moving target. It's really complicated. We're not doing the science by just taking babies out of women and saying, is this baby going to survive? We can't do that science. We're left with a very limited amount of sample size of people of tragic situations where we desperately were babies who already have complications and issues and problems. We are being, you know, uh, uh, born prematurely or born via C-section uh, prematurely or, you know, taken out and put on ventilators and all this technology is advancing. And what does viability mean and what would it mean to risk the mother's and or baby's life to try to keep make that baby viable at whatever point? That's really complicated. And so to avoid that difficult question, they went with this broader concept of like potentiality where they're like, well, OK, could this, you know, this is a nod to the conservatives who say that can become life. We should think about that, right. not whether it's life yet right now, which Everybody realizes, you know, that should be the question that we should be considering. Of course, we should be talking about that. But there are these other people who say, oh, no, I don't care whether it could be survived right now when it's two cells, um, you know, that period that it's fertilized. Therefore, boom, that's life. Right. And, you know, the potentiality is there. That's a big difference. So it's it's interesting because what Roberts did was he, uh, and, and by the way, whereas Roe focused on the trimesters in the 70s, 20 years later, the Casey case out of the US Supreme Court. Right. They focused instead on this notion of viability and undue burden. Is it an undue burden on the rights of women to restrict uh, abortion, uh, given the reality of, of viability. And basically the way it was left is, is for the last 20, 30 years, uh, 24 weeks is about when the scientists say that's when a fetus is viable, could live outside the womb. And so that's been kind of the gold standard. But what Roberts said was, hey, what really is the difference between 15 weeks, the Mississippi uh, rule that's at issue in the Stobbs case before the court, and say 24 weeks, the viability deal? You know, where is it written that we have to stick with 24? So it's almost like he was telegraphing that he might be leaning toward uh, watering down the Roe versus Wade and Casey uh, protections. Uh, the other interesting thing that was uh, raised in the oral argument was the question of respect for precedent. And as you and I have talked about, when when justices are um, being questioned in their hearings, they're always saying, oh, you know, I haven't made up my mind. I couldn't comment on abortion. I'll tell you, though, I believe in precedent. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm really a respecter. Abortion? I've never heard of it. I'm, I want to yeah. be on the Supreme Court. I'm interviewing for that job right now. But, you know, I've just never thought about it. I've, ne I've never formed an opinion on it. I, 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 if you guys had some information about what a, what was it called, a shmushmortion? Yeah. Uh, let me know. And maybe I'll think about it, but I couldn't tell you right now. Yeah, it was. It's tough to get people, but you know, to be fair, on both sides of the of, of the coin. Absolutely. And Ginsburg was 
in her hearing, she was uh, very reluctant to talk. Mm-hmm. But but here's the problem. Um, Alito in particular was zeroing in and he kept hammering away with questions. And he said, hey, what about Plessy versus Ferguson? Now, that was the 1896 Supreme Court decision where they idiotically said separate but equal. It's OK as long as they're really equal, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. water fountains for black people and white people. Right. And so that was overturned in 1954 by Brown. versus One of Board the most of classic examples of how we overturned yeah. something that we realized was dead wrong and thus precedent. I mean, the point of precedent is you can change things. And that's that was Alito's point. Right. And he and, you know, the woman who was was representing the pro-choice interests, was was doing her best to respond. But I mean, she had to admit at the end of the day, well, yeah, it would have been a good idea to overturn that precedent, whether it was 1897, a year later, or 1954. But I think the real answer is that, uh, obviously, if somebody does something stupid, it should be fixed, whether it's six weeks later or 60 years later. But there's a process before you dump a long-held precedent that lots of people have relied upon, Mm -hmm. and and there was a clear, solid analysis at one time, you really are reluctant to do that unless you're really sure. And so the mere fact that, yes, some bad precedents should be tossed into the garbage is not an argument for getting rid of Roe. It's just a reality. If you are one of the, if you're like a legal formalist type, this is how uh, the American legal system works, precedent works. Um, judges should, you know, go through this process and it actually produces results. And they're not just political animals. They're not just making the calls. It's uh, the the way that works in that fictional fantasy land where judges aren't political creatures. They're just making, you know, good logical decisions is you have a decision. Say it's Roe v. Wade. And then the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year, judges are faced with difficult bad situations where they're applying this law and they're going, oh my gosh, I just, it, I'm getting the wrong result here when we use the test or the legal precedent that we created in Planned Parenthood or in, in Roe v. Wade. Like the bad, the wrong outcome is happening, but I have to stick to the precedent. And then the, the Congress passes laws that mess around with the standard and change things. And then the Supreme Court has to step in again and they have to say, well, that just doesn't work. It's not constitutional. And here's X, Y, and Z and stuff. And they change the rules slowly and it's, it's getting all, you know, complicated complicated and it's messy and it's a nightmare. And then finally, some period of time later, the Supreme Court comes in and goes, man, we have tried. We have tried hard. And the process of precedent has failed in this case. We have to overturn this case because the wrong results keep happening. We have to keep carving out new exceptions and changing the law in some way. Throw it in the garbage. Start over. This is how precedent works is we do change things like Plessy versus Ferguson as they happen. And that is the story of Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, you know, separate but equal uh, is OK. And then after that, there are all these cases. Public opinion changes slowly. American Americans see news stories and articles and people write novels and people write to tell, you know, more and more information comes out about how like, yeah, Plessy, uh, Plessy is bad. Like separate but equal is inherently unequal. Telegraphing, that's the outcome of, of Brown v. Board of Education. And the, the court is faced with lots and lots and lots of, of evidence that, man, this situation is bad. The, before, Brown, uh, plan, uh, before Brown v. Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, the, uh, the U.S. government 
commissioned a massive study that took years for scientists and social scientists and government workers to look over the entire United States and come back to, uh, to, to them and say, you know, what's going on here? Is this working? Is segregation bad for America? And shocker, the results were, yeah, it's real bad. It's extremely bad. Separate but equal is inherently unequal. And then the Supreme Court in that case said, we're making a change. We're, cha- we're overturning this precedent. Times, ha- they are a change in. And America, it should be a change in. And we should make black people full citizens. Now, of course, that, that this didn't accomplish that. Uh, not even close, Brown versus Board of Education had to be followed up by Brown v. Board of Education uh, numero dos, uh, a second opinion uh, several years later where the Supreme Court said, hey, Southern states, you're just not doing it. We're sending in the National Guard. We're literally going to enforce this at the point of a gun that you must integrate your schools. And then a couple of years after Brown v. Board of Education, in a case that is not really taught to American high school students the way the story of, oh, America's great and it's a march toward progress and everything's getting better and better every single day. We're not taught about how about 10, 15 years later, the uh, district courts and then the, the, the circuit courts and then eventually the Supreme Court started whittling away at uh, Brown v. Board of Education on the basis that, well, if you can't prove the individual intent, bad intent, racist intent of individual state legislators or school administrators in choosing the way that kids get segregated, if you can't prove that these individuals are racist by looking into their heads, which no one can do, then uh, I guess separate but equals okay. Because you can't prove that they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And Brown v. Board of Education was functionally overturned 10 or 15 years later. Nobody talks about that. And nowadays... American schools are more segregated than they were before Brown v. Board of Education when in the South they were segregated by law, especially they're more segregated in lots of places where they were previously less, like the North and the West, where we think of as progressive bastions, but we're not. So precedent, this idea that like you should step in and you looking at at Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown v. Board of Education is like some magical Christmas land, perfect, amazing, everything's fantastic, there's unicorns all around for of that's how precedent should work and we should copy that as a model, it belies the truth that there is a whole process where you overturn a bad precedent and replace it with something good. And we know from this process that even when you follow that process, that it gets screwed up in the end anyway, because it's <laughs> not a real process, because it's just politics, because it's, the, the Supreme Court is the same thing as Congress. It's the exact same thing as elected officials who are all just out there putting their political beliefs on the table and pushing them and trying to get reelected. Uh, and it's exactly the same functional thing. And so on your point, we're going to explore that actually next week's uh, podcast uh, when we look at a Ninth Circuit decision on gun rights. Yeah. It's remarkable how uh, carefully the ju- judges uh, hew to their political origins. In terms of who elected, who appointed them, the mm-hmm. people that picked them for their spots. Funny that they always stick to yep. that. But yeah, it really is. I mean, to, to sum up and, and not to get too incredibly way off track with a history uh, a, a, a lecture uh, rant and, and also, uh, you know, the, the, when it comes down to it, they're going to get rid of Roe v. Wade in large part, in substantial form. Now, they may moderate it in some way, and they will get praise for it. The mainstream legal media will say, oh, great job. You didn't throw Roe on the trash heap of history, and you didn't torch uh, uh, women's rights 100%. You just got you rid of— both CNN and Fox will say this? Yes, absolutely. You, mm-hmm. they, they absolutely will say, hey, they moderated. Hey, they didn't totally—they could have thrown—they could have said, we're overturning Roe, we're overturning Casey, uh, we're just throwing him in the trash heap 
of history. And uh, a, 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 we live in Handmaid's Tale now. And uh, abortions and, and women's health care are, are illegal everywhere. They're not going to do that. They're going to throw it back to the states to decide, for example, what viability means. And as a result, uh, the states where they don't want abortion will say babies are viable the moment that they're conceived or a week later or whatever before women even know they're pregnant. And boom, suddenly the Supreme Court gets to throw up its hands and say, well, we didn't overturn. Well, you may be right. You may be right. But I'm thinking CNN might have a a different take. But I'll look forward to hearing Chris Cuomo on CNN talk about it because. Oh, wait. Oh, 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 wait. wait. Poor Chris. He's gone. Extremely Um, fired. So now let's switch to Clarence Thomas's favorite question, which he posed several times in the hearing and the abortion hearing. Hey, where you tell me where the word abortion is found in the Constitution? You I thought tell you were going to say his favorite question was, is this an alien pube on no, my Coke can? No, that was during the hearing when he was uh, put on the court. So then his, his related question is, oh, so you th- say abortion is part of privacy. Tell me where's privacy in the Constitution? So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. The 14th Amendment, uh, the state anti-abortion laws, uh, according to Roe, right. violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, right. which protects against state action that interferes with the right of privacy, including a woman's right to end pregnancy. That is what Roe said. Now we look at the language of the 14th Amendment. It says... Uh, If you're uh, born or naturalized in the U.S., uh, then you are a citizen and no state may deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. Now, what does this mean? Liberty, according to the Supreme Court back in the 50s in the case called Bowling versus Sharp, uh, said that the word has not been defined with precision, but it's not just freedom from bodily restraint. It said liberty under the law extends to the full range of conduct which the individual is free to pursue, and it cannot be restricted except for a proper governmental objective. Right. Then a few years later, Justice Harlan in 1961 said it's liberty is not just a series of rights in the Bill of Rights, like speech and press, but instead it includes freedom from all substantially arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints. So then in 65, we had the Griswold the case, big one. where Supreme Court this said is privacy is protected yeah. by the Constitution. Right. People can have contraceptive devices, birth control pills, if they want as right. part of privacy. Then we have... Lawrence versus Texas, you can have the law against sex, same-sex intercourse. That's out because it violates privacy. Right. The same-sex marriage was based on privacy. So given all that, I mean, isn't Clarence Thomas kind of swimming upstream to to insist on the explicit reference of uh, to abortion or privacy in the Constitution? If, Obviously, a thousand different yeah. fact patterns. Yeah whether it has to do with guns or speech or abortion, uh, could be implicated by the generic headings of due process and liberty, right. even without an explicit reference to the right. word in the Constitution. So uh, in that 1965 opinion in Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the, the which said uh, you get... Uh, I thought you were going to give the citation. Uh, <laughs> no, no I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have the, the, the literal uh, Westlaw site. Um, but yeah, so in that opinion, Douglas said... Penumbras and emanations. And everybody in law school reads that and goes, what the hell is he talking about? Penumbras and emanations. And from, pro-life people also say, what the hell right, is he talking exactly. about? He's saying. Sounds like the moon, penumbra. Right. It literally comes from like astronomy. Yeah. So the shadow. Yeah. Right. So uh, of a planet. Right. So Gris, in Griswold, the court said, look, you you don't just look at the words in the Bill of Rights. You look at what the words in the Bill of Rights mean, what they extend to, what you can understand that they reference. And 
privacy is one of those words. It doesn't exist in the Constitution, but from the words in the Constitution, you understand that things like privacy are guaranteed. And then from those, you take another leap and say, there, because privacy is protected, you should uh, not have the government deciding whether women or men can have contraceptives. And that's the the, the, the holding in Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. And the uh, American conservative legal project since 1965, about 65 years ago, the process, well, 60 years ago, whatever it is, the the, the American legal uh, conservative legal project has been to undermine that. They're coming for Griswold. They're coming for birth control. Not everybody in the conservative camp wants to make birth control illegal, obviously. But I'll tell you, that has been the project, because if the conservatives can undermine Griswold, if they can undermine this idea of the penumbras, if they can un- undermine the idea that your rights are uh, not just what's written in the Constitution, then conservatives on courts, including the Supreme Court, can throw out any government action that protects individuals' uh, uh, rights. So that's why I don't think the Supreme Court is going to dump Roe, because they, by doing that, would be opening themselves up to the point you're, you're making. People would be able to say, oh, so next thing you're going to say we can't take birth control pills? I mean, it's a religious issue. You know, you could say right. it, it, God intended for this person to exist, and if you take a birth control pill, you're interfering with the will of God. Right. Or uh, God intended for that person to exist, and now uh, the the egg has been fertilized. Right. And if you take the morning after pill, you're killing a uh, a life. Right. And you could say it the same thing after, after two months. You could say it after six months, eight months. Right. And then there was a there would be a question. Well, as a pro choice person, do you really think you should be able to have an abortion on demand at eight months and twenty nine days? How about nine months and one day when the the poor child comes out with spina bifida and somebody you know dropped a stitch and didn't know it? So we should execute the one day old baby. All of these are very difficult political, legal, theological issues right. that the the court isn't equipped to, to handle. So as a result. I think that the court is going to say, you know, uh, Roe wasn't perfect. And so what we're replacing it with this undue burden standard reinterpreted. Right. And 15 weeks in Mississippi, that's that's, you know, not an undue burden. Yeah. I would- and then we just fight every single battle right. when every state comes up with their variation on 15 weeks. And that may be the outcome that uh, they land on because they've got to get. Uh, say Roberts knows the jig is up and he doesn't want that to be known as the the judge that killed the justice, the chief justice who killed uh, Roe v. Wade and outlawed abortion. Uh, so if they don't have him, then they do need both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And it's possible that either one of Kavanaugh or Gorsuch is uh, moderate enough to say, uh, I, I want uh, to fight. I want the conservatives to be able to force everybody to fight every single individual individual battle and have ACLU file, you know, 500 lawsuits in the next year and fight it, uh, you know, take them on the beaches and, and one by one and try to defend this and, and have abortion be outlawed in half of the states and abortion be somewhat more legal in half the states. And it's possible that that's where they, where they will land. But if the conservative legal movement had its way, and you can represent the conservative legal movement very well with guys like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and even Amy Coney Barrett, if they had their way, then they would be 
destroying Griswold. They would be saying this whole Bill of Rights, Penumbras and Emanations nonsense where you invent rights and you say there is a right to privacy, even though no, the American public didn't pass a, 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 a constitutional amendment saying there's a right to privacy, that you just invent that crap. If 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 they had their way, they would absolutely be undermining Griswold in that way. They would be destroying it. They would be saying it's gone. And because Griswold is gone, Roe's gone. Because Roe's gone, Casey's gone. And it all it's a house of cards. And that has been their goal since 1965, since they lost on this case. And as you pointed out, the two or three cases leading up to it, that this is the the sort of the ultimate you know final expression of it. And so. You, we can say maybe you'll have these moderating influences of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, but you know what? I don't think that they're moderate. I don't think that they care about, you know, throwing it back to the states and fighting on undue burden and viability or, or whatever else they decide to come down and land on. I think that these younger, you know, less less ideologically pure and newer to the court justices will go with the more senior justices of Alito and Thomas. I think that they will say they will listen to Alito and Thomas, Thomas, whether it's textual or subtextual, who say to them, you will be hailed as a hero, a conservative. You know, if you're right, and we'll know in June, probably, uh, if you're right, I wonder if the reason for that phenomenon is the polarization era we're in. Because when you look at Kavanaugh's situation, Mm. it was so intensely political, even referenced the Clintons going after him. I think that these justices of the Supreme Court, you think of as these paragons of virtue and objectivity and legal excellence. I don't know who thinks of that, but pinnacle of their career. But throughout our history, they've been the guys, the guys generally with the black robes. Yeah, deciding Dred Scott. But yes, absolutely. I wonder if that's that's really what we've come to in our society where they are no longer like David Souter, who may be a little right center he ended up very left of center instead you just start with a position and you know there are people who hate you and want you dead and so you're going to be ruling against them yeah. for the rest of your career yeah. i don't know well it, it's funny though everybody says this abortion issue is such a thorny one but you and i have, have excellently and thoroughly evaluated Dismantled it. it we've we've resolved the whole thing <laughs> when we come back we're going to talk about whether the michigan parents of the 15 year old shooter should be prosecuted for manslaughter so Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So another gun shooting, a very tragic 15-year-old nutcase boy in high school there in uh, Michigan uh, gets a gun, early Christmas gift from his parents. He was a semi-automatic pistol, went online to call it My New Beauty. This is the day after Thanksgiving. He and his dad went to shop uh, for it. Uh, he and the mom tested it all the next day. It is then stored, unlocked in the parents' bedroom. So here are the warning signs. Um, teacher reports to mom, you know, your son was searching online for ammunition. Uh, mom's not worried. Mom texts to the son, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You just have to learn not to get caught. Now there goes mother of the year, right? Yeah. So now the parents have been alerted, alerted by the school to a disturbing drawing. Uh, with violent images and a plea for help. Just hours before the shooting, a teacher found a note that the kid drew, scrawled with images of a gun, a person who'd been shot, a, a laughing emoji, and the words, blood everywhere, and the thoughts won't stop. Help me. So the teachers tell the parents, all right, we're all sitting here in the counseling room. He needs more counseling. The parents did not want the kid removed from school. They did not ask him if he had the gun. They did not search the backpack he brought to the office for the counseling session, even though we think now the gun was in there, because a few hours later, he 
shot and killed four classmates. He was allowed to return to class. Now, the authorities look at all this and say, uh, parents, you are hereby charged with manslaughter. You could go away for a long time. The son, of course, is being charged with first degree murder. Who knows how that's going to work out being 15 and, you know, juvenile justice and so on. Uh, how are you with the decision to prosecute the parents under these circumstances? Yeah, I mean, the facts seem to be pretty clear that they had the information they needed to have to make better choices and could have saved these people's lives. They could have saved these people's lives any number of times and they didn't do it. And this is, you know, I think, I think a lot of people might look at tough situations and say, well, you know, parenting is really hard. Um, you know, parenting a kid who's, who's mentally troubled, um, and is, 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 you know, it's also hard if you don't have parenting skills, which I think these parents lacked. Yeah. It's really, really, really hard, but this is, sorry, we have the dog joining us on the podcast. I don't, I don't know if that means he agrees with you, Connor, or if he disagrees <laughs> with you. Was does, that, yeah. was that an angry bark but, or a you, yeah. you go girl bark? Yeah. But I'll say not every kid who commits a violent act, uh, not every uh, parent of a teen, uh, should be charged with, you know, criminal negligence or criminal acts or whatever else, just because, um, he uh somebody their their child did something illegal or hurt somebody but this is i don't think is a close case i think that this is a slam dunk i think that these people had a lot of information and every opportunity to protect themselves and others uh and they didn't do that and it's it's so clear and so uh obvious i mean the kid is drawing saying you know guns blood i the voices won't stop i need help and the parents aren't doing what they need to do, despite that, you know, being presented with with all this information. It, there's there's no more hypothetically, you know, terrible and gross situation than you can construct and come up with uh, beyond this. Other, other than if the 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 kid said specifically, "I'm going to go to the school at five o'clock p.m. and shoot you know, the person A, B, and C." It, beyond that, that's that's is it. That's as bad as it could be. So yeah, I think it's a it's a slam dunk. I think that these. Parents, you know, have made such an incredibly bad series of decisions, of course, uh, fleeing from the police when they uh, they they knew that they were going to be arrested, uh, hiding in this like warehouse right next to their car that they had abandoned because they specifically knew that people would find the car and would recognize it. So they just park it in a parking lot and then hide in a building near the abandoned car. Right. You don't think people are going to search the area once you've given up your vehicle. You obviously have to be in that area and they just stay in that area. When people go searching for it, apparently they had attempted to flee to Canada. The rumor is they had. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, talk about losing mother of the year. Two parents abandoning their 15 year old to rot in prison for the rest of his life while they go on the lam and, and, you know, a little plastic surgery, change the name. Apparently they attempted to flee to Canada, but didn't couldn't cross the border because they didn't have proof of vaccination because they're anti-vaxxers, too. Fantastic. How great. So I'm going to break my rule here. My rule is we don't uh, achieve social justice based on jury verdicts. (laughs) We don't make decisions about cases, criminal or civil. You and Jody Armour agree with that, as he was talking about on NPR the other day. Yeah, because, you know, the the facts in the law of a case are should should govern people's rights. But I will say this, uh, on the assumption that it was the right thing to do, 
to charge these parents. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't want them charged if it isn't the right thing. But right. on the assumption that it's right, it's good, I think, that it'll send a message yeah. to parents everywhere that they ought to be really careful about the guns yeah, and warning absolutely. signs of the kids going nuts. Absolutely. So, hey, we're going to get to uh, Bill Cosby next week uh, because the U.S. Supreme Court has a chance to put Bill Cosby back in prison. And so we will chat about that next week. One hopes. But there is time for Guess the Verdict, America's favorite game show. Are you ready for your challenging always, question? Connor? Always. Now, this is going to be a tough one. I, okay. I have a feeling you're going to want more facts. And as usual, we I have no more have facts. Them. Yeah. So Connor's going to guess the verdict of this real life case. 19-year-old Carl Truman of Los Angeles suffered a crushed hand when a neighbor ran over it with his Honda Accord. Mr. Truman's hand was in harm's way because at the time the car started to move, he was in the process of trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. So he then uh, files a lawsuit because, after all, he's got a crushed hand. Sure. Uh, So, Connor, what's your guess? Uh, Does Mr. Carl Truman win in his personal injury suit or does he lose? Okay, so the guy's trying to steal a hubcap, right? Um, It's like literally the stereotypical most minor crime imaginable, right? There's no, like, this is shoplifting, but not from a shop. Like, if you're stealing something from somebody's house, you're not entering their home. You're probably in their driveway. Um, You're not breaking in with a What if it was a first edition $5,000 hubcap? Very expensive hubcaps. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, it may be... The dog agrees. Yeah. So I, we should just bring in the dog. We're going to have to third. We're going to have to give Jagger a billing. He's here. Gonna, yes, he's going to get a screen credit, credit for yeah, the podcast absolutely. and uh, residuals. Obviously, we got to write him a check. Yeah, Maybe but it could, it could be just kibble, kibble, kibble yeah, residuals. Kibble, yeah. OK, so I think this is uh, I mean, there are a lot of classic burglar gets hurt type uh, cases where the, the, the fact that this person was a burglar is not actually legally relevant. The issue is whether they were trespassing or whether the condition that they encountered was dangerous. And so I think that if you, you know, you you don't check your mirrors and you roll over a kid behind you who's running after a ball. It's the same as if you don't check your mirrors and you run over somebody who's trying to steal your hubcaps. And that is going to be the basis. Dog likes my analysis. That is going to be the basis of these type of opinions. Uh, and I think I think the guy gets his hand fixed. You you win. Truman won $74,000 plus wow. medical expenses. That's plus medical? Yeah, plus what? medical. Yeah, so it was a bonanza. It was really worth it to have your hand crushed. Yeah. Hopefully it wasn't okay, the, maybe not. the dominant hand. Yeah, That's not. right. Well, well, that's his thieving yeah. hand, obviously. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. important, at least. <laughs> all right. Well, sorry we didn't get to Bill Cosby, but as I say, we will get to him next week. I yeah. uh, hope you all have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. <laughs>